And so if this is your first time here with us, we've been preaching through the book of Acts. And today we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 12 to 41. So if you have a Bible, physically or digitally, I invite you to open at this time and read along and listen to what God is saying. If you don't have a Bible, please, no shame at all, please get up and grab one off the back table back here. And if you don't have one at home, you may keep that one as well. So let's open our Bibles, friends. Let's, let's look at the Word. And man, I invite you to keep them open. We're looking at a lot of Scripture this morning. Let's listen to what God is saying because He speaks to us through His Word, the Bible. So let's pay attention. So the title of this message is The Promise Fulfilled. The Promise Fulfilled. So let's go ahead and start reading Acts 2, 12 to 41. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Quote, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, 
sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received His word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That was a lot. That is a glorious passage. We need God's help. So please pray with me. Oh God, the truths found in this passage are exceedingly precious. They are too wonderful, Lord, for me to do justice to this morning. So, oh God, would you help us? Would you give them their due in our minds and hearts? Would you powerfully move in our midst and in our hearts, Lord? Please, would you empower my meager attempt this morning, God? Would you drive home your truth in our hearts, Lord? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, friends, I don't know if you've noticed... But we live in a world of hyperbole, of overstatement, of exaggeration. A world where we are told and we ourselves even speak as if everything we hear about and do matters in some type of life-altering way. Hey, I've been guilty of it myself. I'm sure the younger crowd in here may relate to this way of thinking and speaking a little more. But we say things like this. That was seriously the best movie ever. Or, dude, my wife's peanut butter cookies will literally change your life. Really? Whoa. You know, hey, things haven't been going so well for me lately, so maybe I should think about watching that movie while eating those cookies, right? Probably be in for some pretty big life change. But we also hear this on an even bigger level from companies trying to vie for our attention, right? wanting us to know how incredibly important their products are for our lives, how we seriously cannot do without them. Now, many of you know that I'm a fan of Apple products, and they've served me very well. So take a recent ad campaign of theirs. It was for one of their products, the iPhone 4. An incredible video pops up. These crisp images of the phone are shown. Light is glistening off of the metal. It moves from scene to scene, showing all the wonderful ways that it changes lives. People are happy. A smooth voice narrates. And the video ends with this line. This changes everything. Again. (laughs) So that was two iPhone models ago. Evidently, it only changed everything again for one year. But when we zoom out the lens, we see how insignificant some of the things that we get excited about really are. 
and how inappropriate the language is that we often use to describe them. Because we are stealing language that belongs to the acts of God alone. You see, when everything matters, when everything is critically important or life-changing, it can make it seem like nothing actually matters. These words begin to lose their meaning. But fortunately, friends, there are some things that do matter. There are some promises that aren't smoke, and there are some events that have happened that really have changed everything. And one of those events was what happened on the day of Pentecost. Now, last week, Al preached on the narration of the event of Pentecost, if you'll remember, the description of what actually happened. And then in this passage, God in his mercy inspires Peter to get up and to explain what just happened. Because God is not in the business of leaving us in the dark when it comes to what he is doing in our world. Because, listen, if all that we had was the description of the event, we would all be in trouble. The early church would have been in trouble, left to try to come up with our own explanations and interpretations of what happened. Thankfully, God has given us the explanation and the interpretation of what happened at Pentecost here in the passage that we're looking at this morning. And you know what? Its explanation is surprising. And you know what else? It demands our response. Which leads to my opening statement about the passage, if you'll put it on the screen. Pentecost, the explanation it requires, and the response it demands. The explanation it requires, and the response it demands. So to help set the stage for us here, let's read back over what actually happened there at Pentecost. Let's look at Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Okay? It says the following. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues, as of fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. As Al showed us last week, what was happening here was amazing. It drew a huge crowd of people as the simple, unlearned Galileans were speaking fluently in all their different languages, proclaiming to them the mighty works of God. They were amazed. They were astonished. They were bewildered. 
And it led them to react in two different ways. Look again at verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. So some went straight to mocking them, thinking that the only explanation must be that they were drunk. But others, amazed and perplexed by it, seriously inquired and asked this question, What does this mean? And it is this question that prompts Peter's speech. And so this passage that we are looking at here this morning is really organized around two driving questions that the crowd is asking that's gathered. The first we just saw asked in verse 12, what does this mean? And then after Peter gives his long and glorious explanation to what Pentecost means, they ask, what shall we do? In light of what it means, what shall we do? And so those are the two questions that are really going to drive what happens here in this passage. So let's get into question one. And we're going to spend the majority of our time here, just as Peter does. So let's look at it. Question one. What does this mean? As we get into Peter's speech to answer this question, I want to go ahead and let you in on his answer, okay? Because as I mentioned, the answer is surprising. And the argument that Peter uses to get us there, it's complex, but it's precious. So what did Pentecost mean? Well, Peter's speech works towards this answer. What happened at Pentecost meant that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. Well, that's not the answer I would have given. If you would have asked me a few weeks ago about this, what Pentecost means, I would have probably mentioned something to you about the giving of the Spirit, right? Well, indeed, that is front and center to what is happening here. But Peter's point here is that the giving of the Spirit is intimately tied up with Jesus being Lord and Christ. And so Peter's going to arrive at this answer by quoting three Old Testament passages. And his argument really turns on each of these passages and the points that he's making through them. And so what I want to do is I want to lay out those three points for you as well in advance. The three pieces to his answer to really help give you some hooks on which to hang his answer on, okay? Because the points that he's making here are so important. They really are the center of our hope as New Testament believers. And so here are the pieces to his argument. If you can put it on the screen. Number one, that the promised Holy Spirit has been poured out. Number two, Jesus is the promised Messiah, risen from the dead. And remember that the word for Messiah and Christ are the same thing. Jesus Christ means that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus the Messiah. So number three, Jesus is the exalted Lord who has poured out the Spirit. So that's where Peter is going. So let's get into it and let's see how he does it, okay? So read with me verse 14. It says the following. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So this is just the beginning. Of his lengthy response, he stands up with the other 11 apostles and he addresses the massive crowd. 
evidently was made up of Jews who lived in Jerusalem, as well as a multitude of them who had come from the region of Judea and traveled there for the Jewish Feast of Pentecost to celebrate the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And so he takes their second response first about them being drunk, and he humorously addresses it. He's like, guys, it's 9 a.m. Do you really think that this many people would be drunk right now? Come on, let's be serious. No, I'll tell you what this is. Oh, this is what God spoke through the prophet Joel. You see, if there was actually any humor in his voice at this point, he leaves it behind because he wants them to pay careful attention. He wants them to give heed to his words. And so Peter's first quote is from the book of Joel that we have in the Old Testament. And this brings us to the first piece of his answer. Number one, what does this mean? It means the promised Holy Spirit has been poured out. So Peter goes on to quote the scripture from Joel 2, 28 to 32. And before I read it, listen. When these New Testament authors quoted from the Old Testament, it was a big deal, especially for their Jewish audience, in establishing the fact that Christianity was the continuation and the fulfillment of Judaism, as Peter's doing here. And for the Jews, these were their scriptures, their Bible. This caught their attention. Listen, if you come up to me around lunchtime and you say something to me about wanting to go to to Chick-fil-A, I'm going to put aside whatever I'm doing. I'm going to say, what's up? You've got my attention, okay? But in a much more serious way, this Joel passage was one of the precious promise passages of the Old Testament. Peter had their attention, and he should have ours as well. So let's read it. He quotes Joel here, verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So listen, in the book of Joel... This quote comes in the context of God, through Joel, calling Judah to repent and to weep and to return to him in light of the devastation that he's brought upon them and in light of the future day of even greater judgment, what's called here the day of the Lord. And then right after that, he begins to talk to them about the Lord's graciousness and how it's not too late and how they can still turn back to him, and how he would bless them. And then comes this precious promise that not only would God do amazingly gracious things for them in the land in which they lived, but that one day he would not only pour down rain on them, but that he would pour out his spirit on all his people. And the stress is on the allness of his people. Every single one, the sons and the daughters, the old men and the young men, the male and the female servants, all of God's people would have his spirit 
poured out on them. What a promise. And it may be difficult for us to grasp the preciousness of this promise because we live here in the New Testament era where we have the Spirit poured out. We're not Jews waiting for this to happen. But this was a long-running Old Testament hope. Even going back to Moses in Numbers 11.29, I'll read it for you, where he said this, Would that the Lord, all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. You see, while the Spirit was certainly active in the Old Testament, empowering leaders and inspiring prophets, and you might argue enabling faith among the believing remnant and the promises that they had, He had not come to every single believer in the power and permanency with which He has come now. He had not come in the Christ-exalting fashion that was only made possible after Jesus had come. And so Peter quotes this promise of God that he would pour out his spirit on all his people. And he says, that is what is happening. And I believe that while this Joel passage here has to do with the giving of the spirit and prophecy, the declaring of the mighty works of God, that all of the Old Testament promise passages about the spirit are in view. We're talking promises of writing his laws on the hearts and minds of his people causing them to be faithful and walk in His ways, enabling them to do so, and much more. Promises of the eschatological blessing of the Spirit. And so Peter is saying, God is fulfilling His promises. He is giving His Spirit to His people. These are the last days. Can you imagine? Think about it. The turbulent history of Israel. Each nation going into further and further sin until God sends them off into captivity. It's been centuries since anything has happened. Can you imagine hearing that these things have actually come to pass? That God is actually fulfilling them. Look, we as humans, we say so many things. And so many of our words just fall to the ground. We don't follow through on so much of what we say, and we just get used to it. And political campaigns are probably the biggest culprit when it comes to this. Candidates can promise so many things to so many people, and yet when they finish, if you were to go down a list of their commitments, so many of them wouldn't have been fulfilled, either because they weren't able to make progress or because they never really meant it in the first place. Or maybe they just forgot. Thankfully, our God is not like that. His words do not fall to the ground. All of them will be fulfilled. Not a single one does he forget. Oh, friends, is that your God? The graciously, undeservingly faithful God? The God who is faithful to what He has said. He will do it. I pray that you would see God this way, friends. And so the first piece of Peter's answer to what Pentecost means is that God is fulfilling His promises to pour out His Spirit on His people. But Peter's not done. And if you think about it, 
this wasn't necessarily good news for the crowd. The Spirit hadn't been poured out on them. And the news was only going to get worse before it got better. Because there was also this issue that people from within their very midst were responsible for the death of Jesus. And I think that is why Peter chose to quote Joel, why he was inspired to choose the Joel passage to quote from. Because the giving of the Spirit is intimately bound up with the promised Messiah and Lord. And both are brought together in the Joel passage. Read the end of that Joel quote again with me. Verse 21. After talking about the giving of the Spirit, he says these words, the final line. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What does that mean? Who is the Lord? And who needs saving? Well, Peter gets into that as he moves into the second piece of his answer. So, he's answering the question, what does this mean? Number one, it means the promised Holy Spirit has been poured out. But surprisingly, number two, it means Jesus is the promised Messiah raised from the dead. So let's read Acts 2, 22 to 24 and see where he goes. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so Peter moves from that Joel passage, and I believe he begins to make the who is the Lord. And so he begins to talk about this man, Jesus of Nazareth. Now they would have remembered who he was and what had happened. How just 50 days before, he was grossly crucified and killed with no cause. How maybe even many from within their very midst had been in the crowd chanting, crucify him. And were responsible for his death. Look at what Peter says. He was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. Well, this is the first sign of trouble. God was the one testifying to Jesus and doing mighty things through him. So if that's true, if God was on his side, Jesus' side, then what side are these Jews on? He continues, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It's just if Peter is saying, listen, the death of Jesus was always God's intended purpose and plan, as will come clear in a moment. But you killed him. You killed the one in whom God was working in. You were not doing God's work in this matter as you thought you were opposing him. But listen, though you killed him, though you judged him guilty, God's judgment of him stands not only in opposition to yours, but also over yours, and God raised him up. And not only did God raise him up, 
but it was impossible for him to stay dead. Think about that. It was impossible for Jesus to stay dead. Look at what it says, verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So the word pangs here, it's often used to refer to labor pains, where the child is forcing its way out. The woman's body must give it up. Now, I know a little something about that. (laughs) If you remember, I told you all a few months ago about the birth of our precious little second daughter, Annie. When my wife went into labor, buddy, there was nothing stopping that. She came so fast we couldn't even make it to the hospital. She wouldn't be denied. She was coming out. (laughs) And the same was true for death when it came to giving up the body of Jesus. He would be resurrected. The grave could not hold him. Nothing could stop it. Oh, friends. We have a God whose purposes cannot be thwarted. And we have a Savior who has defeated death itself. Do you struggle with believing that God will fulfill his purposes for you? Or do you struggle with fearing death? Oh, friend, find your solace right here in our death-defeating Savior. So not only did God raise Jesus from the dead, but it was impossible for him to stay dead. Why? Because of God's indestructible purposes and promise that Peter's about to quote. Here in verse 25, he's quoting from Psalm 16, 8 through 11. And so let's read it. Verse 25 of Acts 2. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, this was a psalm that David wrote, rejoicing and hoping in God instead of in false idols. And David's joy and his blessing of the Lord leads him to extol him. As as he finishes, he says these words, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. Now the word Hades there refers to the realm of the dead, and then the word corruption refers to bodily decay, like what happens in the grave. And it seems that David must have just overstepped his bounds here in his joyous praise when he said that, right? Because his body did in fact decay. And in fact, that's just the point Peter makes in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Peter's like, listen guys, we all know David is dead. His tomb's right over there. There is no way that this was actually referring to him. So, was David just using a little overstatement, a little hyperbole? Did he get a little crazy in his, in his, in his joy in God? No. He didn't. Listen to what Peter says. Verse 30. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah, 
that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. You see, David was not only a king, but God also frequently used him as a prophet. And God himself had sworn to David previously that he would set a descendant on his throne forever. In Psalm 132, 11 through 12, it's recounted. Let me read it for you. It says this, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. And so what Peter is saying is that David was not speaking about himself, but was prophesying about his promised future heir, and that he was actually prophesying that his heir would not only be the Messiah, but that he would also be resurrected from the dead. In fact, the promised Messiah must be resurrected from the dead, because how else would he be able to sit on the throne forever? A resurrection had to occur. And so look at the connection he makes. He's been speaking about this promised Messiah. And then in verse 32, he says this. This Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. Peter is saying, brothers, God promised these things. And listen, this man, Jesus, was raised from the dead. He is that guy. He is the heir. He is the Messiah. He is the one. God raised him up, and we all saw him. Can you imagine how the crowd, what the crowd must have been thinking at this point? Okay, Peter, not only are you telling us that, number one, instead of these guys being drunk, that they've received the promised Holy Spirit, But now, too, that the guy we crucified and killed was actually the promised Messiah? If this is true, things are not looking good at all. But Peter's not done. He has one last piece to his answer remaining. He's answering the question, what does this mean? And he's told us two things already. He says it means, one, the promised Holy Spirit has been poured out. And two, Jesus is the promised Messiah raised from the dead. And now three, Jesus is the exalted Lord who has poured out the Spirit. So let's read what Peter says. Look at verses 33 to 35 with me. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now this is an astounding thing. Not only is Jesus the promised Messiah risen from the dead, but he is exalted at the right hand of God. And he is the one who has poured out the Spirit. And so Peter again quotes here from Psalm 110.1 to show how David also prophesied that God would exalt this Lord to his right hand. Obviously, again, it wasn't David himself who ascended because he died. 
Peter is claiming that this man, Jesus, is the exalted Lord and that he has poured out the Spirit. That the Holy Spirit being poured out, listen, is direct evidence that Jesus is Lord. Listen to that again. The Holy Spirit being poured out is direct evidence that Jesus is Lord. And even more astounding than that is what we see when we compare back to the passage from Joel. If you'll put it on the screen, the Joel passage. Remember, it quoted God the Father as saying this. As saying, I will pour out my spirit. If you remember, God declares, I will pour out my spirit. But who does Peter say has poured out the spirit? He said that Jesus received the Spirit from the Father and that He is the one who has poured Him out. And it also said at the end of the Joel passage that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, the name of the Lord there in that original Hebrew Old Testament passage, you know what was behind that? The name for God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the Holy One. What Peter has done and what he's about to make explicit is to say that Jesus and Yahweh are equal. Now that was an astounding claim. Oh, friends, do you see Jesus as your exalted Lord? As God himself? And is your understanding of the Holy Spirit closely connected with your understanding of Jesus? Because the two are inseparably connected. And so Peter Peter brings this all to a head and he concludes with this final line in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So not only have these Jews been found to be opposing God's purposes, not only have they missed out on the eschatological blessing of the Holy Spirit, not only have they killed the promised Messiah, but they are responsible for the crucifixion and killing of God himself. They killed God. What were they to do? The evidence was stacked. They'd seen it with their own eyes. And so look what it says in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. It's as if someone had taken a knife and stabbed them right in the chest. They were cut to the heart. And so they cry out to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And so that's their second question. If that's what Pentecost means, what shall we do? They're pleading with Peter. What shall we do, brother? Is there any hope for us? Please, God, have mercy. Oh, friends, listen. Listen to what Peter says to them. 
and see the grace of our God. Starting in verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Oh, friends, do you see God's mercy? What kindness that God would save, that he would forgive, and that he would give his spirit to the very ones responsible for the death of his son. 3,000 of them received his word. They believed, they repented, and they were baptized in the name of their new Lord, Jesus, calling on him for salvation. Oh, friends, our God is a God of amazing mercy and grace, forgiving his enemies. And our God is a God of amazing power and love, making his enemies his children. Is this your God? Is Jesus your Lord and Savior? And have you received the Holy Spirit? You see, Pentecost meant something. Something huge. Something amazing. It meant that God had fulfilled his promise. It meant that he had poured out his spirit. It meant that Jesus Christ was Lord and Messiah. So, how will you respond? If that is what Pentecost means and meant, how will you respond? God will not be ignored. What happened at Pentecost merits and demands our response, just as it merited their response. Listen, if you've believed that Jesus Christ is God, if you believe that he is your savior and that he died for you and rose again, then respond by rejoicing in all that God has done. Rejoice that you have been forgiven of all of your sins. That's an astounding thing. Rejoice that you have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. He is in you right now, and he's with you. And rejoice that you are living in the blessing of the new covenant of the last days. And don't simply rejoice, but live it. And for the others of you here, who have not believed in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. How will you respond? Oh, I pray that God would cut you to the heart this morning and that you would ask along with the crowd, what shall we do? 
What shall I do? For you see, your sin and my sin are just as much responsible for the death of Jesus as the Jews' hate and actions were. So how will you respond? I think there are a few of you here. In fact, I think there may be a few different groups of you. There are those of you who are here, you've grown up going to church. Maybe your parents are believers. Some of you are older, some of you are younger. And there may be others of you here for some other reason. Maybe your spouse is the more committed one. Or you're here out of more of a cultural tradition of coming to church. Whatever the case, this is what you've known. It's not that you're necessarily against Christianity. It's just not that amazing to you. You don't give it a whole lot of thought. It's just kind of been part of your life, but you've never really embraced it for yourself. Maybe you do believe in God in general, but Jesus is not really a key figure for you. May I just say to you that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. He is a key figure in God's plan. If you want to know God, you must know Jesus. In fact, the only way to God, the Father, is through Jesus. Listen, when God does something, it can't be ignored. Hanging over this whole passage, especially in the quote from Joel, is this idea of the last judgment, where God will judge each one of us. And the one thing that will matter on that day is this. Did you repent and believe the good news of Jesus Christ? This is what God is calling you to do today. Respond to what he has done. Repent. What that means is turn from your prideful unbelief. Turn from your sinful ways. Admit that you need a Savior and call out to him. Put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. And he will save you. Listen to what will happen when you do. If you truly believe and repent, you will be forgiven all of your sins, all of them, all of them. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And on the last day, instead of facing the horror of eternal judgment, you will be welcomed into the kingdom of God, your Father. Oh, put your faith in the Lord Jesus, I plead with you. And finally, maybe there are those of you who do care. Maybe you're trying to figure out, do I believe? Is this faith my own? Or maybe you don't think that God could forgive you. Oh, friend, if God could forgive those who murdered his son, how could he not also forgive you? It is a light thing for God to do. So take your eyes off of yourself. Quit looking at your own sin and allowing it to paralyze you in unbelief. Look up. Look to Jesus. He is the risen Lord and Savior. He's the promised Messiah, the God who gives the Spirit. Look at Him. Believe in Him. He will cleanse you. He will forgive you. He will give you his spirit and cause you to change. Remember the prophecy from the passage in Joel has been fulfilled. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord now 
will be saved. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ now will be saved. So friends, for those of us who do believe, we truly live in the good of God's great work. Jesus is our Savior. We have been given the Holy Spirit. We are living in the days to which the Old Testament saints of old longed for and pointed to. So let's get ready to sing and praise Jesus as our Lord and Savior, as I pray for us, and as the worship team comes up. Let's pray. Oh, great God. Thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit poured out on us. Oh, I pray that you would help us to somehow get a sense of how amazing and precious this is. The Spirit of God himself has been poured out on his people. And thank you, Lord, for your risen and exalted Son, Jesus Christ, who was given for us, your enemies. We're not here this morning claiming that we are righteous or that we've got it all together. The very fact that we are Christians means that we acknowledge our sin and we acknowledge we desperately need a Savior. Oh, Lord, thank you, God, for your Son. I pray that you would grant those who haven't called on his name for salvation to do so this morning. To say, Jesus, save me. I believe. Help my unbelief. And would you grant us, Lord, your people to boast in you alone. To walk in the goodness and the blessing of the final days, Lord. Certain that Jesus is our Savior and Lord. In his name we pray, God. Amen.